reading along with us, which I would deeply encourage you to kind of get out your Bible, whether it be on a phone or kind of a good old-fashioned Bible, and kind of read along with us. And if you have been reading along, Revelation 4 is kind of where most people stop reading Revelation. Like, Revelation 1, normal. Revelation 2 and 3, mostly normal with a few weird phrases. Revelation 4, that's where most people are like, I'm done. That, that's, it gets weird. There are some creatures in here. There's all kinds of things. And then most of us don't actually read from 4 all the way to 21. And then we pick it up in 21, and there, there's some things that we can recognize. But I want to ask you to be reading along with us, whether you're here or online, so that as we come together, these images and these things that are there will begin to make a lot of sense to you while we work our way through this particular passage of Scripture. This is the moment where we talked about in week one where we could be tempted to take the bait and spend hours trying to figure out who and what and if and where all of these incredible images and visions and kind of figure out all of these things. If you haven't read chapter four, you'll hear it in a moment, but it's in this chapter when we are introduced to strange and wonderful creatures. Things that look like a lion, or an ox, or a man, or an eagle, where eyes cover their bodies with six wings kind of on their back and their feet and all over the place. It's here where we're introduced to 24 elders and a sea of glass that's clear as crystal, and the images and details go on and on and on. And the temptation is that we could spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what all of these things are and what they mean. The mistake that most preachers and writers make is that with great certainty, they speak as though they know what these things are. I'm 42 years old, and I've listened to preachers and teachers, and I've read books with great certainty get it wrong for literally 38 years of my life. I've heard Turkey, I've heard Russia, I've heard... Uh, just complete randomness all the way through. And what, pro- what happens is that we get focused on these things and we miss out on the main focus of what this particular chapter is going to be speaking about. And it's, and it's a lot of conversation of speculation on top of speculation on top of speculation. In our first sermon during this series, we communicated to you that my goal for me, the preacher, me, the one who is kind of reading and working our way through, is that I would tell you kind of where there is significant agreement amongst serious biblical scholarship. And if we work through a chapter and you're like, man, he didn't really say anything about that. Well, that's probably because there isn't significant agreement amongst serious biblical scholarship. Revelation 4 when it comes to these images, these four living mystical creatures that John is seeing in this moment, there is general agreement from the significant, serious biblical scholars that these are angelic creatures. What they are and what they do and what they represent, there is disagreement at every turn. So if someone you're reading with great clarity and conviction speaks about what these things are, know that there is no agreement amongst significant biblical scholars. They all agree that these are heavenly creatures, but what they represent, what they do, their function, there is disagreement at every turn. Please, please, please do not take the bait and chase these details and miss the point. Because Revelation 4 is one of the real chapters where you see, oh, this is the point 
But we can get lost in some of these sidebar conversations, thinking that it's real study, and miss the blessing that comes from reading it with the focus on Jesus Christ. It sets up this question for this morning as we work through Revelation 4. What is Revelation 4 talking about, and how does it relate to you and I here this morning? Well, to answer this correctly, we can't ever forget the context by which John has received this vision and who it's being delivered to. If there is a particular thing as a pastor teacher that causes me to lose my hair, it is that when we engage the scriptures and we remove the context, and somehow we kind of extrapolate out and we pay no attention to the kind of environment at which this letter is being delivered. And it doesn't matter if it's Revelation. Every single thing written in the text of Scripture is written to a particular moment in time that God is bringing real news to about who He is and what's going on in the world presently. There's much we can learn down the road but we have to go back and we have to always ground ourselves, particularly in this book, that this book is given and written to seven churches that find themselves what is now modern-day Turkey, and God wants to communicate some very real things to these seven churches while they sit under the weight and might and scope and power of Caesar and the Roman Empire. Just so you can get a sense of the size of this empire, there's a kind of a map on the screen. This is all in red. This is the size of the Roman Empire at around 100 AD. So about 10 years after this letter that's been written. And the map isn't too far removed from what it actually looks like at this moment in time. So often we think there's Rome and there's Jerusalem and that's all they've conquered. They've gone out in every direction for many, many, many years, conquering and enslaving and oppressing all kinds of nations. So this is the size and scope of the Roman Empire. And that red letter, or that red arrow, this is the location of these seven churches that Jesus, via visions to John, is speaking to. It would be easy for these seven churches to begin to drift in their thinking away from what they know to be true, given the size and might and scope of the Roman Empire. It would be easy for them to think that Caesar might actually be God. Because everything that the Romans do, they seem to in fact get. Every nation they fight against, they win. Every law they pass comes into effect with no resistance. It is remarkable when you find yourself in an environment where everything that you do and the leader of this, this particular empire is claiming to be God, and as Caesar speaks and as Caesar wills and as Caesar wants to do whatever, so it, is hap so it happens in the context of the Roman Empire. And it would be easy for these individuals, a church like this one this morning, for them to begin to believe that maybe in fact the one they are worshiping isn't in fact God at all. Maybe it is, in fact, Caesar. Because everything he wants, he gets. To further this, they might even believe the lie that money is where it's at. That the Laodiceans would be a prime example of this. They have kind of succumbed to money and wealth and this way of life because this is what the Romans are doing. And I want to get in on this because this appears to be the right thing because if it's wrong, how could it grow in blessing and size and scope and so the lie unfolds. They might even think that because of the persecution and death that many of them are experiencing, that 
that their God doesn't have the ability to protect. That this Jesus character that they're following, that maybe he's now kind of absent and they're going to switch teams to another, another God. This one who is demonstrating real power and real might and real influence in their lives. This is a moment in God's people's history that's significant. These seven churches sit under the might and the weight and the power of the Romans. And everything that the Romans do, they get. And there is absolutely a space for Christians who are living in these places to begin to drift. This is why we went through 2 and 3 when Jesus comes through this vision and says, but I hold this against you. Because you're drifting into spaces because of the thing that's influencing you, namely the giantness of the Roman Empire. This isn't the first time that God's people have sat under the weight and size and scope of an empire like this. In week one, we had talked about how the book of Revelation is not always about the future. It is every bit about the past and the present as it is about the future. And this is one of those real moments. If you are sitting in one of these seven churches and one of your elders gets up to read this letter, particularly this portion, there are things in this letter that you are going to remember as God's people. If you have any handling of the Old Testament at all, this is going to be eerily similar to things that you already know. God's people, their history, this isn't the first time where they've been sitting in this type of environment. The first time, well, one of the times, but we're going to highlight two of them. One of these times is during the time of Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament. God's people, Israel, is sitting under the weight and the might and the scope and the power of the Babylonians. And in a similar moment, in a similar way, God comes to them to, through Ezekiel and gives him a vision of something significant. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it, Ezekiel 1. Or if you don't, we're going to highlight some of the key passages. And I want you to hear the language and the description that's there in it. And when we get to Revelation 4, you'll be like, oh, this is not a new moment. These aren't new things. And it begins to speak into the life in a very neat way. So this is Ezekiel 1. This is hundreds of years before this moment that we're working through in Revelation 4. And this is the vision that God comes and gives Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says this, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, there was form, uh, there was form of human. And then it goes on. And on the right side of each, they had a face of that of a lion, and that of an ox, and that of an eagle. Such were their faces. And it goes on with this great description of this, this environment that is literally out of this world. There's another moment in God's people's history, and we can find it in Daniel. Again, Daniel, God's people, Israel, is enslaved by the Babylonians and Persians in this moment. And they sit under the might and the weight and the power of this particular empire. And God comes to Daniel in the form of a vision. And we're going to read some of that again here this morning. And again, listen to the phrases. Listen to the imagery. Because it's eerily similar to that of which we just read in Ezekiel. In Daniel 7, 2-14. We're not going to read the whole thing for time's sake, but we're going to highlight some of the key phrases. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different than the other, came up out of the sea. 
The first was like a lion, and there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like that of a bird. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very, very powerful. We could spend hours of time working through this vision in Ezekiel, working through this vision in Daniel, working through the vision in Revelation 4, and somehow, and, and listen when I say this, try to figure out which one's Russia, which one's Turkey, blah, 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 blah. And what's awful about that is that Christians who live in Russia are like, what, why are we this? Why is it that Western folk attribute these things to us? It gets very bizarre when we declare we know what on earth this is from our privileged position. When other Christians would read it, and I wonder, like, well, that's Canada, that's Prince Edward Island, that's the lion, that's the leopard. Like, they're a terrifying beast that's going to, like, it's just foolishness, and we get lost on details that are really irrelevant to the conversation. Robs us of the point of the visions. The summation or the point or the purpose of why God comes to Ezekiel and Daniel in these moments. Ezekiel, a prophet of God's people, who are in a very bad place. The Babylonians are beginning to overthrow them and they're beginning to enslave them. And like anyone who worships God, you begin to think, where's God? Where is our protector? Where is our provider? Maybe our God isn't God. And these thoughts begin to drift in and God shows up and gives this incredible vision reminding them of something significant. And then we move to the Daniel and the Babylonians and the Persians. Same story, same moment, same environment. Where's our God? How come it's Nebuchadnezzar? How come it's Xerxes? How come it's these other kings? Where is our protector? Maybe our God isn't God, and God shows up to Daniel in this vision and reminds him of something significant. These visions, whether it be from Ezekiel or Daniel, whatever creatures are floating through the heavenlies, whatever powers they might represent, whatever details they are, the point of it is this. Despite what you think, despite the Babylonians, despite the Persians, despite a world that looks like the sovereign Holy Lord is not ruling, I'm still ruling. I'm still being worshipped. I'm still God who stands over it all. And we know this because when we get to the end of the vision, what's unfolding around the throne of God is the same thing. But so often we don't read it all the way through to the end and we get lost on the details and we miss this giant scene that whatever these things are, they are doing something around someone who stands at the center of it all. In Ezekiel 1, it reads this, There came a voice from above, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, was full of fire. And that form there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and it continues on to talk of worship. And then you go to Daniel 7. And there before me was, like, there was one like the Son of Man coming up with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Whatever is going on with the Babylonian and Persians who are enslaving and oppressing the Israelite people, God's people in the Old Testament, whatever drift begins to unfold in their hearts and minds, God shows up in a miraculous, special space of grace to say, listen, I know what's unfolding and I know it's tough and I know it's real, but don't ever forget this. And he gives them this vision of what's unfolding in heaven at that very moment. And then we come to Revelation 4. It's the same type of environment. The new God that's reigning, the new God that's ruling, it's Rome, it's Caesar. The kingdom is impressive. Whatever they look, they take. Whatever they want, they grab. And they're in a struggle. These seven churches are literally under the thumb of an all-consuming, very evil empire. And as John's letter is read aloud, the details that are in this letter are eerily similar to other visions that God's people would recall and find deep comfort in. I want to read to you this particular chapter, Revelation 4, and I want you to hear some of the similarities. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first, that I first heard speaking to me, was like that of a trumpet. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these were the seven spirits of God. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in the front and back. The first living creature was like that of a lion. The second was like that of an ox. The third was, was, had a face like a man. The fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, and here's the issue. Most of us don't ever read this far. We get lost on, oh, what are those four living creatures? Who's the lion, and who's the bear, and who's the human? And we spend hours of time speculating of no value, and we miss this scene, which is how Revelation 4 ends, it's how Daniel ends, it's how Ezekiel ends. Whatever these characters are, they all are around this doing this. Each of the four living creatures, day and night, never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him, who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall face down before Him, the one who sits on the throne, and they worship Him, the one who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before Him and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they were created. We have our very being. This vision, this moment, that Jesus grants John and by extension the seven churches, they're communicating the same point in this moment in time. Despite what seems to be unfolding, despite the reality of you living under the thumb of this incredible, evil, powerful empire called the Romans, led by the human god named Caesar, 
regardless of what you think is happening, there is a different God. The Holy Sovereign Lord reigns and rules over all things. And He is in control of all things. And at all times and in all places, despite what's unfolding, this is the One who is worthy to be praised. This is the One who stands over all things and holds all things together. Don't ever drift into the space, seven churches, that Caesar is God. Don't ever drift into the space that Rome is the sovereign Lord of the universe. There's someone who stands over that. And He is the One who is to be worshipped. When we get to Revelation 4, it really does speak to us here this morning. And I want to talk about the two ways that this actually shapes our life. Number one, there's a giant grounding truth in Revelation 4 that I need you to hear well this morning. In week one of this series, we highlighted this verse of Revelation. It's 1-3. It reads this, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what, it, what is written in it because the time is near. We will be blessed if we hear and take to heart the grounding reality that there is one holy sovereign Lord who rules over all the cosmos. We will be blessed if we take to heart when we hear these words that there is one God who stands over all gods and this is the one who is to be worshipped. May I suggest this moment is God granting John this incredible grace-filled vision that's deeply comforting. In the middle of a struggle, in the middle of imprisonment, in the middle of enslavement, in the middle of poverty and death and false teaching and all the things that the seven churches are experiencing, it's almost like God like cracks open the heavens and says, John and others, Get a look at this. This is what's going on right now on top of all the things that you're experiencing. To the seven churches, this would be incredibly comforting. We have, we have four kids. Most of you know them. When they were young, when a thunderstorm would roll through, our home was like a gong show. Like they would be nervous. They would be terrifying. They would kind of run. And there was like this deeply settling conversation. They would all kind of jump in our bed in the middle of the night and we'd welcome them in once we were dealing with our anger and all those things. Like we'd welcome them in. And then we would like kind of talk to them about you have nothing to fear. It's just thunder. It's just lightning. It's just these things. Like, but God is over this. This deeply comforting, settling conversation. And then they'd go back to bed. It's kind of this moment. Rome is pressing down. They're kind of like jumping in the bed. Like, we're looking for a space to be comforted. And God grants them this through this vision. Like, take, take heart. Like, there is something else at work beyond the things that you can only see with your eyes. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, writes it this way. He says, John is now granted access to the divine throne room of heaven itself. He is not, as some authors suggest, looking out into the ultimate future. Rather, he is glimpsing what is going on in God's presence throughout history, throughout the present time. There's a little line in this quote that I want you to pay attention to. He says he's glimpsing what's going on in God's presence throughout the present time. When we read Revelation 4 as though this is some scene that's way out there, we miss the point of it. This is happening right now. 
while Rome has the thumb on the seven churches. And for the ones who love Christ, this is a deeply comforting image. Deeply comforting reality knowing that God is still present, that He still rules, that He still stands over it all. And somehow, all that's unfolding, it's not the end of the story. And we will press in, and we will lean in, and we will persevere, and we will be faithful all the way through things that are difficult, knowing that there's something behind it all that holds it all together. This is the blessing to the hearer. This is the blessing to the reader. That we would remain focused on the One who has created all things and the One who is worshipped at all times. To say it another way, a little more craspily, there is no blessing for you and I if we try to crack the code of what the four living creatures are. There's no blessing for you. Because chances are you're wrong. Chances are you're so far removed from what it is. There's no blessing to crack the code of what the 24 elders are. Or what the torches mean. Or what all these... There's no blessing that comes in that. The blessing is that we see that regardless of whatever government, regardless of whatever oppression, regardless of whatever, that there is a holy sovereign Lord that stands over it all. And this ought to be deeply comforting to you and I as a Christ follower. It helps settles them. This is this grounding truth that blesses the reader and the hearer. These mythical creatures, these heavenly creatures, right now, they are on full-on worship of the One who stands and rules over all things. And it is remarkable when we think of our life how we kind of navigate these kinds of moments in history. And when we live in our life, it's curious when we think of our own struggles in the 21st century. As we watch millions of people die of COVID-19. As we watch ruling authorities try to battle a virus that creates in us deep anxiety and frustration that nothing makes sense. As we watch restrictions come into place that we can't travel and see friends and family. That we can't travel and go wherever we'd like to go. As we watch new variants emerge around the world and it creates anxiety and nervousness in us. As we're cut off from the ability to gather around graveside and bury the ones we love because of the large crowd that that might gather. As we watch false teachers arise here in this country and in the South and around the world, we watch corrupt politicians govern in grossness. As we watch the world panic to the point of violent rebellion trying to overthrow governments. Where conspiracy theories blossom, it seems like every other day there's a new one out there, often coming from Christians who get lost in the details of passages like Revelation 4. And we miss the point of it all. God, through this letter that He gave to John, is to ground us, is to comfort us. That despite what's unfolding right now, there is one who stands over it all. I remember early in COVID, I'm going to invite Dana and the team to come back because they're going to lead us in some songs here in a moment. I remember early in COVID in my devotional reading, I came across this gem. It's in Psalm 75.3. And, and I'd love for you to find this in your Bible or snapshot it this morning. And I want you to write this and put it on your fridge or whatever you look often because it's this deeply settling verse that gets to the heart of what's going on in Revelation 4. When the earth and all its pillars shake or quake, it is I who hold the pillars firm. 
early in COVID, when everything felt weird, where everything was feeling dark, kind of through this reading, I'm like, oh yeah. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold the pillars firm. And it sets up this glorious invitation for you and I this morning out of this grounding reality that despite what is unfolding, there is a holy, sovereign Lord who stands over all things. And the invitation that comes out of Revelation 4 is, will we together, as a community of believers, like the seven churches in Revelation 4, will we join in with the 24 elders? Will we join in with whatever these four living creatures are? Will we join in and find our place amongst the seven spirits, amongst the torches that blaze, around the throne of the Holy Sovereign Lord? Will we join in in worship of Him? I'm going to invite some readers to find their way to a mic. And while they do, I would like for you just to close your eyes and I want you to listen to the images, the poetry, the phrases that come from these psalms that all speak to the Holy Sovereign Lord, the One who is to be worshipped forever and ever. Amen. Close your eyes and just let these words kind of wash over your life this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and consumes His foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world and the earth sees He and trembles. The mountain melts, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all peoples see His glory. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. 